We've made it as far as Ephesians chapter 5. So this is more about your walk with God in chapter 5. Chapter 4 was about the worthy walk, and it's not a worthy walk because we're worthy. It's worthy because of the worthy Lamb of God, that is Jesus. And then in this chapter 5, there are, you may have noticed as you were reading that it's, the walk just keeps coming up again. First of all, it instructs us on how to walk in love, and then the next portion gets into how to walk in the light as children of the light. And then finally, right before verse 21, it talks about walking circumspectly or walking in wisdom. So when I say your walk with God, listen to me, that's not just some Christian lingo. It means what is your second-by-second second relationship like with the Lord? What is your, what's the state of your step-by-step step journey with God? When it comes to our walk with God, yes, it's a biblical terminology, but it's a very immediate thing. It's a very daily thing, even a minute-by-minute, second-by-second, in touch with God. It's how you're living out your faith, your walk with God. How is your walk with God? How's my walk with God? When we look at his word, what does it tell us about the way we're supposed to be thinking and the way we're supposed to be living in order to please him? Some look at such a practical section like this in the Bible, and they think it's condemnation. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is about us seeking to please the one that saved us. The first three chapters were so much about your wealth in Christ. And now we're in how we should walk since we are saved. How we should live out our faith in him. These are very practical matters. They're not meant to condemn you. They're meant to challenge you to walk nearer to Jesus. If you're his child, that's what you want. You want to be close to his heart. And Jesus said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And we will see some commandments here in the word of God. Jesus said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's the walk, right? Movement in the direction of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The first seven verses are about walking in love. 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Point number one, walk in love, imitating God. All of these will be about how we should walk in love, but one of the ways we walk in love is by imitating God himself as a dear child, just the way a kid copies their parent. Now, you might think of copying or imitating in the way that it's done in our culture, where you have an impersonator, and that impersonator is just patronizing the person that they're mimicking, correct? That's not the kind of imitating that the Bible is talking about here. I have also heard some Bible teachers say, well, this is about Greco-Roman culture, and in this culture, a philosopher or an orator would look for a mentor, and then they would look to that person to teach them how they should write, how they should think, the questions they should ask. That's what this is about. It's not about that either. It's about imitating God as dear children. 
You know the way a child imitates, don't you? You see a little one when they, they copy their parent, they copy their mom, their dad, their grandparents, somebody that they look up to. The Bible is telling you and me in verse 1 that part of our walk in love is when we imitate God. Being a pastor's kid is difficult sometimes because you're quite often used as an example. So I decided to not use my kids' cute pictures as an example of imitating in love because they would be like, oh man, there I am again. Everybody sees me when I'm a baby, when I'm little, right? Uh, so I was like, no, I looked back and I found some pictures of me and my dad, right? And you may have these kind of memories. You may have these kind of even pictures where you know the imitation of a child. And when it says dear child, it means precious, right? So there I am with my dad. If my dad was driving, I wanted to drive, right? It doesn't look like we had our seatbelts on or anything. I was just like going down the road. There's more. I look at this. There I, it's hard to imagine I was ever that cute. My dad's fishing. I'm fishing. That's the dear children. It's your little kid, right? He's not even, my dad wasn't a good fisherman. We wanted to be good fishermen, but it was like, let's, let's do it. He's fishing, I'm fishing. The dear child. What else do we have? Yeah, going out to target shoot, if you can see it close enough there. He's shooting, I'm shooting. What's the next one? I got to remember. Oh, yeah, you appreciate this one. I, I grew up boxing. And my dad was boxing. I was boxing, right? And I had to get dressed up, as you can see. Um, it, that, that's what it was. And I, as I found this one, it's like, it's, it's work too, right? Put sticking the tile on the wall. So when you and I are told to walk in love, it's like that precious child. And you have some of that somewhere in your life, either towards you, or maybe you can see that. And it's telling you and me, our walk in love has everything to do with us imitating God himself and saying, how does he live? What does he do? How does he operate? I need to know him better so that I can walk in love. There's a sweetness to that dear child. When it comes to walking in love and imitating God as a dear child, there's another portion of what we're to learn here. And that is that our walk as we imitate is a sacrifice to God. Do you see that in verse 2? Jesus' death was for us, but it was to God. Your walk in love is to be a sacrifice to God, according to the will of God. When we live like Jesus, it's sacrificial. In fact, by definition, love isn't love unless it sacrifices if we say, oh, I have a love, but it's not a sacrificial love, then it's not a love at all, is it? Because love gives when it's very hard to give. I need to continually be reminded by the word of God that my walk in love is not going to be a stroll. There's going to be some suffering involved. That my walk in love is, is not always going to be easy. In fact, at times, it's going to be excruciating. How do I know that? Because Jesus served in a way that was excruciating. He gave his life in great suffering, and he's the one that we're to be looking to. Hebrews 12, 3. 
For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Who is that? That's Jesus. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Servant, child, follower of Jesus, think about Jesus. He endured such hostility from sinners in his suffering. And if you consider him, then you're not going to grow weary. You're not going to see your walk in love as though it is something you didn't expect. There are those that sensationalize a walk with God into being something that is very simple and very easy. It's not simple. It's surrender. It's us saying, I'm learning to love in a sacrificial way, the same way Jesus loves. Our walk in love will completely stall if we don't consider the sacrifice of Jesus. We'll be shocked when our gift of love costs us something. It's wonderful to walk with God, but it is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to God. And there is a cost to it, a steep cost sometimes. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, I am being poured out as a sacrifice so that you can hear of the Lord and put your faith in him. So we look to Jesus as our example. Part of your walk in him, in him, part of your walk in love is to be an imitator of God as a dear child willing to sacrifice. Verse two, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So walk in love being a sweet aroma. Your life and my life should literally smell good to God. When Jesus laid down his life, doesn't the Bible say right here, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, that that was a, a beautiful scent to the Father. It brought him great pleasure. The Lord has senses like me and like you. He has a lot more senses than we do, and his senses are perfect. But you and I were created in his image, were we not? And to think that we can actually smell good to God, not just smell to God, but that we can smell good to God in our service. Jesus, offering himself for our sins, brought great pleasure to his Father. It was a fragrant aroma. Our lives can be fragrant too. This is a good cross-reference to write down. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We walk in love and we can have a sweet aroma to God. And then the aroma is apparent to those who are saved. And it's even apparent to those who don't yet know the Lord, who haven't committed their lives to him. And they say, they have the fragrance of Christ. Now, a, fra a scent that isn't subtle, it, it's usually pretty obnoxious, unless it's like chocolate chip cookies or something. You almost can't take enough of that scent. But a scent many times is just subtly beautiful. 
And as Christians, that's who we're to be to each other, to those who don't yet know the Lord, and most of all, to God. What steps in my walk are stinky to God? And which parts of my walk are sweet-smelling to him? Can you ask yourself those questions? He's asking each one of us to size up our smell. You can't always detect your own stinkiness, isn't that true? Other people can smell that you stink. You might think like, can you smell your own bad breath? Uh, Would we rather not know if we're odorous? I've heard so many people say, oh, I don't care what people think. Well, do you care if you stink? I haven't heard a lot of people say, like, there are some. I don't need to raise my hand to say, like, I don't care if I stink. (laughs) Right? That doesn't bug me. But spiritually speaking, our lives are either fragrant to the Lord, they bring him pleasure and great delight, or as we get into some of these actions, they're disgusting to him. And that's the truth. They bring him delight or they don't. We sing a song sometimes called Let Our Voices, and it says, let our voices rise like incense. Let them be as sweet perfume. Yes, our voices, but our very lives are to be an aroma to God. Not just that our our singing or our playing or our congregational togetherness in the Lord is sweet, but actually the way we're living out the good pleasure of God towards him, that it would be sweet to him, good to him. To think that we can smell good to God the same way that Jesus smells good to him. That's amazing. That's God's perfume on us. That's God's bath and body works, right? We're the body. It's God making us smell a lot better. You don't naturally smell good, right? I had no amens. All of us realize <laughs> that if we just smelled the way we smelled and there was no cover-up, there was no deodorant, we'd be like, man, I'd be a, it wouldn't be very long. But the Lord, his aroma on us, that is a delight to him. It's amazing to me, it's astounding to me that we can give God that kind of delight with our lives. Walk in love by being a sweet aroma. Verse three, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Third point, walk in love. And you don't have to write that over and over again. They're all walk in love by not sinning against each other. As we read verse three and verse four, did you recognize that all of the sins listed there are sins against one another? Are they also sins against our own bodies? Yes. Are they also sins against God? Yes. But they're sins against one another. We're not loving one another when we commit these sins They're tearing others down when they're carried out. That's why Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets, it's summed up in in love God and love people. Because when you're loving your neighbor, you're not stealing from him or committing adultery with him or lying to him. When we love, these are things that we take off, that we put off out of our lives. What's listed first here? Fornication. That's sex outside of marriage. More than one time, I've had somebody say to me, well, the Bible doesn't, 
it doesn't forbid premarital sex. It says you should, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, here it is right here, fornication, sex outside of marriage. The marriage bed is pure and undefiled, but whenever we take what is reserved for marriage and it is outside of marriage, that's fornication. The root word here is pornea. We think, well, it's not pornography. Same root, same sin. Whether it's of the mind or the mind and the body. Uncleanness. All of this is in a sexual context, so this is uncleanness, sexual uncleanness. So it is said, well, we're, we're not going all the way, so technically we're not sinning. It's also called filthiness later on. Now this filthiness, this uncleanness, doesn't mean, well, I don't have any dirt under my nails. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about how we should not have an unclean approach to attraction and arousal. And I'll get into this later, but it's all over our society. Do we even see that as being unclean anymore when there's sexual arousal, but it's not in the context of marriage? There's this attraction that you're feeding. Now, people say, well, there's going to be attraction anyways. No, duh. Now, sometimes it's like there's attraction. The person just walks in the door or they're not even in the room, right? But we're talking about what are we putting our lives into? What are we making provision for? What are we acting upon? What are our thoughts? This is the uncleanness that the Bible is warning us against here. Don't sin against one, one another in these ways. Then it mentions covetousness. And you might think, oh, that's not sexual. Read to you from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant. So covetousness is not just to covet stuff. It's also to covet people. Now they've got all these words for lust. We should bring back this. Like, I'm really coveting him or her, right? The Bible says that's what it is. To covet is to desire something that doesn't belong to you or someone that doesn't belong to you. And that person that is being lusted after, if they don't belong to you, then it's covetousness, right? So the Bible is warning us here that as we walk in love towards one another and towards God, we're not going to sin against each other in these ways. Then in verse 4, it mentions foolish talking and coarse jesting. And these are the ways that we talk or that we don't talk. Think of how much entertainment is built around sexual innuendo. Think of how so many so-called jokes are actually dirty jokes. This, this is just on the money for who we are today. 2,000 years old, same sins, same conversations. God says, you're not supposed to be like this. This isn't the walk in love. You're hurting each other by what you say and by what you practice when you live this way. Let's talk about the mindset and the motive and the culture because we oftentimes can think, oftentimes can think, well, this is just talk. It's not really action, so it doesn't matter. No, there's a certain motive and mindset behind this kind of coarse jesting, this type of so-called entertainment. Paul wrote this book to the Ephesians and to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What kind of culture did they live in? Ephesus, the god of Diana, the goddess of Diana. Massive temple. Diana, her Roman name. Artemis, her Greek name. The temple to Diana 
was four times the size of the Parthenon. It took 220 years to build the temple to this goddess. And she was the goddess of sexual immorality. So the people who lived in Ephesus were quite familiar with the perversion of sex, the distortion of sex. It was so weird and so wicked. Paul wrote this to a people an awful lot like what we were going through. I hear people say, well, it's never been this wicked before when it comes to perversion. You haven't read your Bible, have you? It's not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah yet. But this is the society, and this is the warning for God to say to us, you're not supposed to live like those that don't know me, that aren't saved, that aren't forgiven. You're to be a new person. You're going to walk in love towards one another. And these are the warnings that I'm giving you. In the worship to Diana in Ephesus, that massive temple just gleamed there in the sun. Part of their worship was sexual immorality. If you went to that temple to worship, part of your worship was to choose your young woman or your young man, very young, that you were going to purchase for the hour. That was the way they worshiped their so-called God. So this is written to a culture that was entrenched in the perversion of sexuality. So people weren't even sure what was good and what wasn't good anymore. That's a lot like us today. And church, you and I ought to be way, way different. Did you notice that it says here that these actions are not fitting? And the previous four sermons in a row were about putting off and putting on, about like a dirty garment that you're to take off is like that sin and put on the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying here, back to that same analogy, that stuff doesn't fit you anymore. That way of life isn't something that you can even get on your body. Michelle bought me a shirt the other day. I was at a thrift store and she's like, this is the coolest shirt. It's so, I can't wait to see it. And I went to put it on. I couldn't even like get it around both my shoulders. It was the right size, but it was a woman's <laughs> size. And I didn't realize it till I started to put it on. And she was like, oh, that's too bad. And it didn't fit me. There was nothing I could do to make myself fit in that shirt. Usually when we can't fit in something anymore, we see that as a bad thing. And we're like, oh, I can't wear what I used to wear. But when something isn't fitting in this context, it's like it's good that we're not putting on fornication, that we're not putting on coarse jesting, that filthiness, unclean sexuality isn't a part of our, our lives or our vocabulary. Because that's something that we, if we put it back on again, we should be like, man, this just doesn't fit anymore. It's not consistent with Jesus in my life. Now we get the alternative action in these verses, don't we also? God says, instead, what's the alternative action? Instead of sinning against each other in these ways, give thanks. You have a lot to be thankful for. So instead of coveting with your eyes that which is not yours, remember what is yours and give God thanks for it. Thanksgiving, instead of that corruption, filling our speech. Look at what I have. Look at who I am. Look at my inheritance in Christ. That is to replace the old action. As you grow in the Lord and as you walk in love, there'll be more and more thanksgiving flowing from you. There'll be more and more 
gratefulness to God for what you've got. You'll be counting your blessings instead of putting your speech into that which is corrupt. You'll be saying, Lord, look at all that you've given me. When I see someone who has committed adultery, I'm oftentimes saying to them, look at what you've got. And there's a blindness there to what they have because they're only seeing what they don't rightly have and that's what they want, right? And to the other eyes, they're look, we're looking on and going, is that guy insane? What is he thinking, right? Well, why is he giving up his family? Why is he betraying his bride? He's a because he's not being thankful for what he's got. Instead, he's become covetous. And so the world lives in this manner. It's never surprising to us when those that don't live for Jesus are just like, hey, I'm in a new relationship now, right? And they try to convince us that it's, it's all good. It's all okay. I just do this every few months or every couple years. And God says, no, walk, not sinning against one another. Walk in love. For this you know, this is verse 5, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with with them. We're going to key on that verse 7 and see the way the previous verses tie into partakers. Walk in love, not being partakers, the fourth and final point. Walk in love, not being partakers. Think of what things were like in Ephesus. Very, very, very few in the church were saved at a young age. The church today is a mix of people who were saved when they were quite young, and some people who were saved later in life. But actually, most people in the body of Christ, percentage-wise, came to Christ, received his grace when they were quite young. But think of how the church at Ephesus was a lot different. Because if we look at Acts 19, the gospel came to this Gentile city, and they were just in the middle of living out their depravity. Then they heard the good news that they could be forgiven because of the cross of Christ, that they could have a new life in Christ. And you've got this culture that's just steeped in its depravity. And the good news of Jesus is preached to them. And right there in the middle of their society, almost none of them were saved when Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus arrived. But then Paul and his co-laborers preached the gospel. And there were 26-year-olds who were living in drunkenness but they got saved. There were 32-year-olds that were living the promiscuous sexual life. They got saved. 35-year-olds who were chasing greed all out were brought into the fold by the grace of God. Hundreds of adults who were previously ignorant and darkened in their understanding were brought into the light. Sin had a real hold on their lives. It was a way of life. Now, certainly there were children who were saved, but they were not from Christian homes because there weren't Christians in Ephesus at that time. They were all going the way of the rest of their society. There just seemed to be no other place to live, no other way to live. 
It was, the, it was the prevailing culture. And then Jesus is made known to them. And they had these powerful examples in Paul and his co-laborers. Salvation came to the sinner. They went from darkness to light, from death to life. There was a complete transformation. And this was an environment that was full of persecution and full of perversion. So yes, like our society in the way that sexual immorality was very accepted, but also a place where if you were a Christian, you were imprisoned, you were beaten, you were put out of the city. And then right there in the middle of it all, the Lord comes in and redeems the Ephesians from their wayward way of life. Have we forgotten how amazing it is that the Lord forgives us? Have we gotten just so used to, you know, I've been, I really have been saved since I was five years old. That doesn't mean I haven't had a lot of the flesh to deal with. But have I forgotten over 45 years, Jesus rescued me. We are a batch of rescued sinners. We all come here because we know that we don't deserve his grace, yet he's given it to us. And because we're forgiven, we're supposed to put off that old life. We're supposed to not be partakers of the current culture. These Ephesians were filled with the Holy Spirit, just like you are if Jesus is your Lord. And the Holy Spirit flowed through them in the ministry, just like it should be flowing through us in their society. They were not saved into a lukewarm church. That's a disadvantage, I say to you. If you've come to Christ, I don't want to be a lukewarm church for you. I don't want to be a lukewarm person for you. I want you to know that living for God is all out. It's all in. Did Jesus not say that he would that we were hot or cold? But since we're lukewarm, those that are lukewarm get spewed out of his mouth, vomited out of his mouth. We talked about smell, now we talk about taste. It's distasteful to God. Be all in for the Lord. It's not wimpy. It's not sissy. In fact, it takes the resolve and the toughness and courage of God to live this way in our current society. Don't be partakers of this perversion. Don't live according to the former self, to the old man, to the old woman. You know what it means to be a partaker? Para, alongside, that's the prefix. You come alongside and also take, right? That plate is getting passed around. That platter is getting passed around. And it's filled with food. And the question is, hey, do you want some? Same thing is true with this wayward behavior, this sinfulness. It's getting passed around in our culture. Don't be a partaker. Say no thanks. Not even the thanks. <laughs> Just say no, right? Because our lives are meant to be distinct, are meant to be different. And it is not because we're special. It's because Jesus loves us. It's not because we have any power in and of ourselves. It's because the Lord has put his spirit into us. We get this warning to beware of empty words. Do you see that in the verse? Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
Because there are those who will not have inheritance in the kingdom. Listen to this. There will be those who say, it's okay if you sin. There won't be any eternal consequences. Don't be deceived by such futility, by such emptiness. The Lord has listed for us the sins of the condemned. These are the, a way of life. It's a way of life for those who are not headed to eternal life. Now, this description here, written in the book of Ephesians, might be a rebuttal to the thinking of the Gnostics. There was a certain branch of Gnostics during this time when we look at Greek philosophy and culture. And this branch of Gnostics taught that the physical was always evil, that our bodies were evil no matter what we did, that the flesh could never be tamed, that our desires could never be tamed. Your spiritual being, therefore, was totally separate from your physical being. This was their way of teaching, their way of thinking. So you had your physical self, and then you had your spiritual self. And they said, you can physically do whatever you want and still spiritually be close to God. This is the lie of the Gnostics. Love God spiritually, do whatever you want physically. This is an empty way of thinking, empty words. This way of thinking is still in the church. We don't necessarily call it Gnosticism. But this idea that a person can do whatever they want and then spiritually still love God. No, the love of God changes our lives. And it works its way into everything. All of life is spiritual. There's no separation. Your physical frame is spiritual. Amen? And you can use it in a way that glorifies God, or you can use it in a way that defames the Lord. So Paul warns us and says, don't listen to empty words. Because Jesus is your Lord, all that you have belongs to him. Don't listen to those who teach. There will not be judgment. There will not be consequences. When it comes to those who teach such things, I ask you to look at your life even now. Aren't some of us in the middle of our consequences, even as we speak? So those who say there will be no consequences obviously aren't seeing that we're currently suffering because of our wayward lives. And there will be much more to come if we don't cast ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord. Christian, Jesus is my Lord. It means he's your all. Everything under his submission, your mind, your heart, your body, your future. No man can serve two masters. If anyone thinks they're going to serve both, Jesus explains, after a certain amount of time, you'll end up loving one and hating the other, right? If we say we can live this corrupt lifestyle and also follow after the Lord, we're lying to ourselves. With that said, there are some long detours <laughs> that we take sometimes. And I'm not here to say how long that detour can be before it goes off the deep end. But let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Don't be a partaker in the perversion. Cast yourself on the mercy of God. He is rich in mercy. That means that if you think he's not going to give you another chance, you're wrong. 
He will. He will forgive you. He will heal you. He'll restore you. And we are our living proof that that is the God that he is. He won't strive with man forever. But I know if you come to him and you confess your sin, he'll be faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your walk in love can only be done with Jesus at the lead. A walk in love can only be following him. And instead of being a partaker of this world, you and I get to be partakers of the divine nature. I thought of this verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, from the old King James, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Listen, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How do you and I escape the corruption that is in this world, the lustfulness of this world, the misuse of sexuality? By putting on the divine nature, by putting on the nature of Jesus. We can be partakers of Christ instead of partakers of corruption. I ask the Lord in my life to let the emotion of sin just bring me as low as it possibly can. Do you pray that? That you wouldn't get numb when it comes to what sin does to our minds and our hearts. And you wouldn't say like, oh, I'm just, I'm getting used to it. Pray for myself and say, God, if I'm in sin, I pray that it would wreak havoc on my mind and my heart, that I would emotionally, even physically, see the, to- the toll of it, right? King David, when he was living in rebellion to God, because he had committed murder and adultery, he said, my bones were like rotting in me. I pray for myself like that. And you know what? I pray for you that way too. That if you're caught up in a sin going down the wrong path, that it would rot your bones out. So that you would be disciplined back in to the fold. That God would say, why would you live a life of deterioration when you can live a life of victory? Instead of saying, oh, I pray that you would comfort them. No, if we're in sin, I don't want any comfort in that sin. I want God to show me this is the way of righteousness. Walk in it. Don't be partakers of the world. Be partakers of the divine nature. That is the nature of Jesus, our Lord and our King. Today, if that conversion needs to take place, it's by faith. You putting your trust in Jesus, he at that point takes your sin. It's very simple. We stop living for ourselves. We ask him to wash us clean. He sets us on a new path. He rose from the grave to give you eternal life. And now by faith, you can receive that eternal life into yourself. And then this journey, this walk that we're talking about is empowered, is powered by his spirit. Oh Lord, thank you for the admonishment that we have received. Lord, every step of the walk Every minute, may we remember who we're walking for, who we're living for. Lord, I I thank you for being so specific in your word. I I don't at all see that it's unapplicable. I see that it's so applicable that we often don't want to look at it. I see, Lord, that you've just put your hand right where it needs to be, 
shown us our society, shown us ourselves, shown us our, our walk and the way it, it can glorify you. So I pray that as we go from this place, as we fellowship, as we break bread together, Lord, to be like you would be our great desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.